Greetings, and welcome to Ed Times Weekly Podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We've been in a little mini-series on evangelism, uh, on sharing the good news uh, of Yeshua HaMashiach, of Jesus the Messiah, and His life, death, resurrection, and, and eternal life in His name. Uh, and today's part three. So we started out uh, a couple weeks ago with a message on what is the gospel. And then last week we talked about the imperative and the priority and the prime directive of evangelism, uh, and especially Jewish evangelism, to reach our people, uh, and what it means to be born again. Uh, And I realized that there may be some questions from last week, uh, based perhaps on some misunderstandings of what I was trying to say, or perhaps on my own poor communication uh, or wording. So if you have any questions please come and speak to me directly. Amen? Now, uh, today I want to talk about how we can relate to and effectively reach our increasingly secular and even anti-biblical culture here in America uh, and in the West. Uh, And most Jews, by the way, are are secular. Uh, So today, uh, it's not enough just to explain the gospel to our culture, the evidence of the resurrection, the reliability of the scriptures. But because we now live in a post-Judeo-Christian society, we also need to be able to use the gospel to critique our modern American Western culture to show where it falls short of secular people's own goals and how the gospel is the answer. Because the heart of modern secular Western culture has been the goal of freeing the individual from any restrictions. So that every person is free to be and to do whatever they want to be and do. Uh, And and I'm going to put this on the overhead. The result of this goal, this secular project, has been this. Number one, all values are now relative. Number two, all relationships are now temporary and transactional. Number three, all identities are now fluid uh, and fragile. Number four, all supposed sources of fulfillment are fleeting and disappointing. And number five, ironically, despite our goal, we're not free. Despite the secular goal of freedom, we feel less and less free. And as Yeshua followers, as followers of of the Messiah, who effectively share the gospel with secular people, and like I said, the majority of our fellow Jews in America are secular, we need to be able to critique our culture. And that means, in part, we need to be able to explain to secular people that the very aspirations that you may have for peace and for justice and for freedom and for equality, they cannot be supported by your secular beliefs. When talking to a secular friend, we need to be able to show them your beliefs about the universe, your beliefs about the world, your beliefs about God, actually undermine the very things you say that you're after, like peace and justice and freedom and equality and community. So evangelism today, sharing the gospel today, is very different from what it was in America 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. Unlike in the past, the majority of people today don't go to church or synagogue and have no desire to do so, and and, and there's no societal expectation that they do so. And unlike in the past, we, in the past we simply presented the truth from the Bible and started out with a, with a common core set of beliefs, secular people today no longer share 
that common core set of beliefs as starting points. They don't believe in God, uh, or in, in the Bible, or in sin, or in the fallen state of man, or in heaven or hell. So you, you can no longer assume these baseline beliefs. And so our evangelism today must adjust accordingly to address our new culture. So, I'm going to put this on the overhead. How do we, number one, get the attention of a post-Judeo-Christian culture? Number two, how do we convict them that they need the Messiah, that they need Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah? And number three, how do we attract them to the gospel so they want the, the salvation that only the Messiah offers? In the beginning of the Messianic Jewish movement, 2,000 years ago, in the book of Acts, most people did not come to faith through some kind of program, uh, or a synagogue service, or an evangelistic event. And even today, when congregations have evangelistic events, typically only 2 to 3% of the people who come there are non-believers. Why? Because sadly, most people don't invite or bring their non-believing friends. But in the first century, the Messianic movement, they, most believers were so on fire for the Lord that they were willing to stick their necks out and share their faith with their friends and relatives and acquaintances. And this was at a time when it was not, not only not cool to do so, uh, uh, to be a believer, but it also was not safe. So first, uh, the Sanhedrin was, was persecuting the believers, starting with the stoning of Stephen and, and the martyrdom of James. And later, the Roman Empire began intense persecutions. But despite this intense opposition, the early Messianic Jewish and Gentile believers actively shared their faith, one-on-one, -on -one, out in the public square, and in the marketplace, and in private homes. And so we need that same boldness and fire today. Reaching our people won't be done for the most part, by special programs or events, although those are fine and needed and often helpful. But the majority of our people will be reached by, only by each of you, one-on-one, -on -one, in relationships uh, and dialogues and personal sharing of your testimony, just like in the first century. So that's the most effective way to get our people's attention. But then secondly, how do we get their conviction? Meaning, how do we show people who don't think they're sinners that they need what Yeshua offers, the salvation that only he offers. You know, today we tend to think of evangelism as answering people's standard questions, like, like how can a good God allow all this evil and suffering in the world? But I'm going to suggest to you that before we answer people's questions, we need to question people's answers. What do I mean? All people operate their lives based on certain answers to the big questions in life. And we'll put that on the overhead here. Uh, like, where do you get your meaning in life? Uh, where do you get your satisfaction? How do you get freedom? What do you do when someone wrongs you? What do you do when you've done something wrong to someone? How do you work for justice in the world? You can't function unless you've got some answers to, to these big questions. And any set of, of non-biblical beliefs is ultimately like a, wearing a suit that's too small for you. It's constantly pinching you and occasionally it rips. So you, have to, so you have to have up in the overhead here, number one, a relationship with, you, with your unbelieving friends. Number two, be willing to identify yourself as a believer. And number three, have answers when their approach to the meaning in life starts to pinch them and ultimately rip them. So for example, let's say your meaning in life 
is that you're successful in your career and making money. Okay, what happens when you lose your job and your career goes on a sidetrack and you realize you're never going to make as much money as you used to make again? Well, if your job was just a good thing, that, that's sad. But if your job and your career and how much money you're making is your meaning in life, it means this setback has taken away your very meaning in life. It's devastating. Uh, but for a Yeshua follower, your meaning in life is to know and serve the one who saved you. And if that's your meaning in life, and you lose your job, and your career goes on the sidetrack, and you'll never make as much money again, as hard as that is, if your meaning in life is Yeshua and not your job, then losing your job, as grievous as that is, can actually end up enhancing your meaning in life because it drives you closer to Yeshua, the Messiah. And three years from now, you may say, I'm so much more happier in Messiah than I was before, despite the fact I lost my job, because this, this actually drove me closer to him, which is my number one goal in life. Everyone has to have some meaning in life. Everyone has to have an answer to this question. And the non-Yeshua answers pinch. And sometimes they rip. And you've got to be there to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. You've got to be there to challenge their answers and show them how, how they don't work when pinch comes to shove. And to show them how, how Yeshua is the answer they need. That's one way in which we need to do evangelism in a post-Judeo-Christian and, and anti-Judeo-Christian culture. Okay? But then how do you share the gospel with people who don't even believe in sin? Uh, and the answer, I think, is, is, is this. Look at Jonah 2, verse 9. So, Jonah 2, verse 9 says, Salvation is of the Lord. Meaning, it's not of you. It's of the Lord. It's wholly and completely of the Lord. The gospel always has two moves. The bad news and the good news. The bad news is you're trying to save yourself in some way, and you can't. And the good news is that you can be saved through Yeshua, and through Yeshua alone. Uh, but how do you approach someone, and how you approach them, depends on, on, on what they think their meaning in life is, and, and every culture is different. So these two moves will look differently depending on the culture you're trying to address. So, for example, most people in the West used to say their meaning in life was to be a good person. That's what life's about. Uh, you, they, they used to be about, at least, to be a good person. Well, then, what are the two moves of the gospel look like in that situation? Well, here's the bad news. You're not as good as you think you are. You're not good enough. And the way you give that bad news uh, is you do what Yeshua did in the Sermon on the Mount. You show them what I'm going to call the spirituality of the law. What does that mean? Most people look at the commandments, like, for example, thou shalt not commit adultery. And they say, well, I've never committed adultery. But Yeshua says, have you ever lusted after someone? Have you ever wanted to commit adultery? Which is a shorthand for any kind of sexual immorality. Yeshua shows the spirituality of the law. He goes down deeper. And when he does that, the person hearing this starts to say, oh my goodness, I am guilty. So bringing the gospel into a traditional culture where the meaning in life is to be good goes like this. You want to be good? The bad news is you can't be. You will never be good enough to God's standards. 
But the good news is that in Yeshua, you can be saved because you can be forgiven. Free pardon. Right now. Awesome. A complete assurance of forgiveness. And you can be good in Him. Okay, but, but that's not our culture anymore. Uh, the average Western person today, especially if you're a young person, doesn't say anymore that the meaning in life is to be good, uh, especially according to someone else's definition. No, what they say is this. The meaning in life is to be free to be myself. The meaning in life is to be free to be myself, whatever I want to be. Okay, well then what does the gospel look like in addressing our modern Western culture today? It's not presented in quite the same way. It's still the same gospel, but you emphasize different biblical themes. You might say to your friend, okay, the meaning of life is to be free, but the reality is you're not. And why aren't you free? Why don't you feel free? Uh, you know you don't feel free. Uh, uh, as this leading secular intellectual, David uh, Foster Wallace said, to put this overhead, he said this, everybody's got to live for something. You might live for money and things, and then you'll never feel you have enough. You might live for beauty and, and sex appeal, and then you'll always feel ugly. You might live for power, and then you always feel weak and afraid and always need more and more power. You might worship your intellect and being seen as smart, and you'll always end up feeling stupid. Whatever you live for becomes your God, your relentless, unforgiving taskmaster. And whatever that God is will ultimately drive you into the ground. It always will. And you become more and more not free, but more and more like a slave to that God. Wow. So ironically, our quest for freedom results in us becoming slaves. To the one, to slaves to one thing or another. Slaves to the idols of your heart. But still, the modern person cries out nonetheless, I must be free, I must be myself. Okay, what does it mean to be yourself? It typically means you, uh, you have an identity that makes you feel good about yourself. That makes you say, I'm okay. Uh, I am who I am. Here's a recent blog that was posted on the internet by a secular person entitled, You Can't Fake It. And this is, I'll put this on the overhead as well. He writes this in his blog. We've got a woke world of marketing that sells products by selling you to yourself. Like the ad I saw the other day, join our gym. Join the body acceptance movement. Which is kind of ironic. <laughs> We've also got our social media tools to craft the perfect idealized versions of ourselves, curated to the millimeter, so that we can present exactly what we want to present with digital precision. But guess what? None of this is working. I see people here in New York City, he's writing from New York, who are outwardly the most secure, confident people who never betray a hint of doubt or remorse, who project cool all the time, who are popular and are getting plaudits and positive affirmation all the time, but whose flow of life reveals that inside they still hate themselves. None of that stuff matters. None of it can get at the core of the inadequacy that we feel inside, maybe secretly feel inside. And I've begun to wonder, he writes, is this the human condition? Wow. You hear all that. His suit is pinching him. No, it's ripping. So here's the bad news. 
You want to be free? You're not free. You're enslaved to the idols of your heart and driven by the things you're living for. You want to be yourself, but you don't even like yourself. And you try desperately to like yourself, but it's not working. Because you always feel like you've got to perform and like you're never quite good enough. It puts it in the overhead. But here's the good news. Is that the gospel says there is one master that if you fail him, he'll forgive you. And if you get him, he'll completely satisfy you. Your career cannot die for your sins. But there's one identity that's not subject to the up and downs of performance. It's called being justified by faith alone in Yeshua alone. It's called being united with the Messiah. It's called being righteous in Him. It's called being adopted into His family. It's called having God the Father look at you and call you a delight and as perfect in His Son, Yeshua. Ask your secular friend, did you know that there was an identity like that available to you? Now, on the overhead again, for traditional people, the meaning in life is to be good, and the gospel is showing them the law and how they're not good, that there, but there is forgiveness in Yeshua. And the next overhead, for the modern person, the meaning in life is to be free, to be myself, and the gospel is showing them that all this does is create an idolatry and, secret, and ceaseless striving, and that they, but that they can be secure and at peace and fulfilled only if they find their identity in Messiah. So you've got to show them the things you're living for are actually enslaving you. And only in Yeshua can you get the identity you've been searching for all your life. Now, what can we learn like, from this, uh, about this from the early Messianic believers in the first three centuries? Why did the believers in the first few centuries after Yeshua have such a successful missionary encounter with the Greek and Roman and pagan world. Because of all the religions in the Roman world, including Judaism, Messianic faith was by far the most persecuted. Most persecuted faith of all in the first three centuries after Yeshua. By far. The Messianic believers were constantly persecuted more than anybody else. So how did they grow? What was their appeal? One of the appeals was the close-knit community itself the early Messianic believers formed remarkable communities that had five key marks or distinctives to it. Five marks that were category-defying and still are today. What are these five marks? I'll put this in the overhead, please. Uh, Number one, the early believers formed communities that were the most multi-ethnic and multi-racial communities the world had ever seen. They were racially and ethnically diverse like no other community. Number two, it was the first community to ever say, we will not only care for our own poor, but for everybody else's. They were highly generous and committed to caring for the poor. Number three, they were non-retaliatory. And this was in a shame and honor culture where vengeance was everything. You give this to me, I'm going to do this back to you tenfold. But the believers were not this way. If you attacked them, yes, maybe they would defend themselves, but they would not go and attack you back. If you burned down their house, they would not burn down your house. Instead, they forgave you. They loved their enemies. 
Number four, Messianic believers were against abortion and infanticide in a society that accepted them both. Now, because abortion was medically dangerous, especially back then, infanticide was very, very common and 100% legal in the Roman Empire. You know, in the Roman Empire, if you had a child you didn't want, you simply threw the child out. You put the child on the garbage heap. And the child either died there, or people came along and raised them as their slaves. But the Messianic believers came along and said, no, this is wrong. And they put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Uh, and found these abandoned infants and children and brought them in and raised them as their own and saved them and loved them and cared for them. All the early Yeshua followers were pro-life in a very comprehensive, holistic way. They taught there were no degradations, no different degrees of human life or human value, no degradations of human worth. So, for example, women were not below men. And children were not below adults. All human life is precious and valuable and made in the image of God. So, so the Yeshua followers established communities that, one, were multi-ethnic, two, cared for the poor, three, were non-retaliatory and forgiving, four, were pro-life, and number five, finally, was a, a sexual counterculture that stressed purity before marriage and fidelity and monogamy, monogamy within marriage. And this actually brought about the first ever sexual revolution. Because in the Roman world, sex was seen simply as an appetite for self-gratification. It was understood that men, uh, even if they were married, men could have sex with anyone they wanted to at any time, with other men, women, boys, girls, didn't matter. And anyone of a higher social status could force sex on anyone of a lower social status. Those were the sexual mores and norms and practices of the Roman Empire. But Yeshua followers came along and sparked the first ever sexual revolution. Because they said, we're against porneia, meaning sexual immorality, meaning that sex is only uh, for inside of marriage between a man and a woman. And this was seen as totally radical. Because the believers said that sex is not just for self-gratification, but for self-giving. And not just emotional self-giving, but you can only have sex with someone to whom you've given your entire life. Uh, and sex was seen as a way of, of giving your life to your spouse. It was seen as, as a kind of sacrament, which means a, a visible way of demonstrating an invisible reality of your covenant commitment and your oneness. A tangible way of putting yourself in the arms of someone you've given yourself to fully and legally. And it was, rad and it, by the way, it was radically, equally consensual. This is one of the most astounding things that Messianic believers introduced to the world, that sex was actually supposed to be consensual, which the Roman Empire had never heard of. Uh, and they, they, they based this on, in part on 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4, which, say, which says this, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. The Bible is saying the husband's body does not belong to him, but to the wife. And the wife's body does not belong to her, but to the husband. And therefore, sex must be consensual and mutual. Do you realize what a bombshell that was? Where did our modern idea that sex has to be consensual come from? Where does this idea come from? 
It came from the New Testament. It came from the Messianic believers. The Scriptures also teach uh, that male and female each have unique, unreproducible uh, excellencies. That both men and women have excellencies the other gender cannot reproduce. And therefore, marriage must be a union of all the diverse excellencies of humankind. It must be only between a man and a woman, and anything else was an abomination. And this was the first ever sexual revolution. And it was, seen as, it was seen as very restrictive, of course, compared to the Roman or the Greek or the pagan norms, but because it limited sex to a, a husband and a wife within marriage. But at the same time, it was also seen as an amazing vision of the true purpose of sexuality. It wasn't just for us to be another senseless animal, uh, but to be, in a way, like God. Uh, because God enters into a spiritual union with us because we are Messiah's bride. And through our relationship with the Lord, we have this awesome communion with Him. And note that it's also an exclusive relationship, right? We worship the Lord and none other. There are all sorts of ways in which the Messianic believer's sex ethic mirrors God's own nature. It was a matter of self-giving, not self-taking. In other words, the biblical vision of sexuality was high and lofty and exalted. And therefore, despite how restrictive the biblical sexual ethic was, the spiritual vision overwhelmed and awed the people, and eventually it won the field, culturally. Now, take a look at these five traits, put them up again. The early believers, number one, multi-ethnic, multi-racial. Number two, caring for the poor, justice for the poor. Uh, Number three, non-retaliatory, forgiveness, loving your enemy. Uh, Number four, pro-life. Number five is sexual counterculture, stressing sexual purity and fidelity. Uh, there's always going to be a huge pressure you're going to find today from on one side or the other to break apart these five uh, biblical social values and, and, and just take one or two and reduce them to some kind of narrow political cause. But if you do that, if you give in to that, if you compromise that, you will lose the uniqueness you will lose the ability to have a true missionary and transforming encounter with your culture. Because the encounter means you challenge people. You challenge their idols. And you also are the means that God uses. We talked about this last time. For Him to to regenerate and transform people into new creations in the Messiah. So we both challenge people with the Gospel and we seek to persuade people with the Gospel. But if you compromise any of these five distinctives just to fit in, you are no longer salt and light to our culture. And you won't change anyone's life. Rather, they'll end up changing you. So we want to make the world like the body of Messiah, not the body of the Messiah like the world. Which leads to my next point. In reaching out to our secular society, We not only have to present the truths of the gospel, and we discussed that in detail the last two times, we also need to be able to, I'm I'm going to call, deconstruct uh, the alternative and competing cultural narratives of our modern, individualistic, relativistic, Western society. That is, we need to not only communicate what we believe, but also be prepared to explain what's wrong with competing worldviews and alternative life commitments. And we need this not only for ourselves, but for our children as well, to understand and to be able to counter and respond to other religions and philosophies 
Because just as much as we're trying to convince the world of the gospel, the world is trying to, constantly trying to convert you and your children to the world's anti-biblical and non-biblical points of view. And it's constantly bombarding us and our children daily, right? Through TV shows, uh, movies, music, ads, social media, public schools, colleges and universities, media, Hollywood, the court system, Washington, uh, liberal churches. So we need to know how to identify and counter competing and opposing worldviews. And Yeshua himself did this, right? You know, in, in, in the type of counter-argument, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he said, you, you've heard it said, uh, but I say unto you. And when Yeshua says, you've heard it said, but people think he's talking strictly about the Hebrew Scriptures, but not always. Sometimes he's not quoting scripture when he says you've heard it said, but rather he's saying, here's what you've been told by the religious authorities. This is what you're being told by your culture. But I say unto you. So likewise, we need to be able to identify and refute the lies our culture constantly bombards us with. For example, uh, here at Chaim, we have your youth for maybe an hour a week, right? In junior Shabbat or, or youth group. But the average child or teen in America spends four to eight hours a day. Yes, four to eight hours a day on social media. And therefore, they're being indoctrinated into the secular worldview right behind your backs. Now, what is the modern secular worldview that your children are being indoctrinated in by the movies and TV and cartoons and advertisements and music and school and social media? Well, from the overhead, uh, and the, the first and most important one is this. It's called the identity narrative. Uh, uh, it says you must uh, be true to yourself, the sovereign self. Yourself is sovereign. Yourself is, is, is the center. Yourself is the measure of all things. And by the way, your self-identity is fluid. It can change as much as you want. It can be one day male, next day female, one day gay, the next day straight. So that's the identity narrative. Uh, number two, we'll put this in the overhead, uh, is, the, is the freedom narrative. Everyone should be free to be and do whatever they want as long as they don't hurt somebody else. Number three is the happiness narrative. Do whatever makes you happy. And finally, number four is the morality narrative. Only you can decide what's right or wrong for you. There is no such thing as objective truth because we all have our own truth. This is what the music your kids are listening to, the TV shows they watch, the movies they go to, the social media uh, po all points to, uh, and, and, and the social media posts they're, they're all, that they, your kids are reading are all subtly pushing all the time, constantly. Why? Because there's an agenda, there's a narrative that the cultural elites, Hollywood, social media tech giants, schools, uh, news, media, politicians, bureaucrats, they're, they're all pushing. Uh, and most believing parents aren't teaching their children the truth in such a way that it's identifying, let alone weakening or defeating or refuting these opposing narratives that they constantly hear from the world every day. So, let's in the overhead. Uh, that be one of the world's themes, you've got to do three th four things. Number one, you've got to identify it so it's actually visible. Number two, try to affirm it to a limited degree. Uh, one, to A, to get their attention, and B, because they're really not 100% wrong. 
Number three, then you've got to subvert it and show what is wrong with it. And then number four, you have to redirect it to a biblical standard and showing how the gospel is the ultimate answer. So let me give you an example. Probably the biggest baseline cultural narrative in our society today is what I'm calling the identity narrative. The identity narrative is this. You've got to be yourself. in, In traditional cultures... Identity was formed differently. Identity was formed through your family, your tribe, your your people group. Uh, You're a good person if you sublimate your individual desires for the good of your family or tribe or or people. But in our modern Western society, identity is formed in the exact opposite way. You look into your own heart and and you decide who you want to be and what you want to do. And you assert your individual interests over and against what anybody else says. Indeed, today that's the only heroic narrative left. Those who are heroes in our society, those who rebel against society and assert their own identity. And you find this in virtually every sitcom, every movie, every cartoon. The only heroic narrative we have left is you figure out who you want to be, no, that anybody else, not your parents, not your school, not your religion, not your ethnic group, not your nation, no, that anybody else tell you different. So, for example, 2013, uh, the hit number one Disney movie, Frozen. Lead character is Elsa. She sings this Oscar-winning song called Let It Go. Here are some lyrics from, from Let It Go. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong. No rules for me. I'm free. Oscar-winning song in 2013. This is a modern narrative. How do you address that narrative with your kids? No right or wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. How do you address it with a secular person you're trying to witness to? Because this is what they believe. First, you've got to relate to them by agreeing with whatever part of it you can. For example, it's probably good that we're no longer totally beholden uh, to the situation that we're we're born into, like in the ancient culture, uh, where your family and your tribe uh, dictated who you'd marry, uh, what you would do for work, uh, where you live. So we can affirm the good parts that our individualistic society adds a good balance uh, to some extent. But then you've got to show where it breaks down. Uh, So, for example, put this on the overhead. uh, Number one, four ways in which it breaks down. Number one, the modern identity narrative of the sovereign self is totally self-centered and narcissistic. It's anti-family, anti-community, anti-any cultural institutions or societal moral values that once shaped us. Why? Because it's all about me. Number two, it assumes we can affirm ourselves with no outside input. But no one can bestow dignity or worth upon themselves. We all need recognition. Uh, what others think about does matter, you know, unless you're a sociopath or a psychopath. You cannot get significance through only self-recognition. It also must come from others. In a word, you cannot name yourself or bless yourself. We need someone from the outside uh, to see that we are of great worth. Uh, and the greater the worth of that person, that person is, the more powerful the recognition is to help them to form and affirm our identity. Number three, the modern need to create your own identity forces many to make other things like money, looks, power, success, sophistication, 
uh, romance, uh, into this impossible to fulfill idol that ends up crushing you. Number four, finally, it is ultimately a lie that you create your own identity. Why? Because society subtly forces its grids upon you without you realizing it. Because the truth is, our hearts are shaped by what our culture tells us. So, for example, imagine an an Anglo-Saxon warrior walking around Britain in the year 800 A.D. And he sees two different impulses within himself. The first impulse he sees is he likes to kill people. He really loves to smash anyone who gets in his way. And he looks within himself and says, Yes! Yeah, that is great! That's me! Why? Because he's living in a shame and honor culture that affirms that behavior. But the second impulse this Anglo-Saxon warrior feels inside is one of same-sex attraction. And he quickly says, No, that's not me. And he resists and suppresses and eventually eliminates that feeling. Because his society rejects and condemns it. Now imagine today a young man walking around Dallas. It's the same two impulses. First, he likes to smash and to hit people. What does he say? No, that's not me. And he signs up for anger management class. (laughs) Or he ends up in jail. But he also has these same-sex feelings. And because our society keeps pushing this homosexual agenda and trying to normalize it, he says, well, okay, maybe, maybe that's who I am. The point is this. No one really gets their identity just by looking within. Rather, we receive a moral grid, an interpretive grid, and we lay that grid on top of our inner feelings and impulses, and we sift our feelings through that grid. The grid tells us which feelings are really me and should be expressed, and which are not me and should be rejected. And where do you think our Anglo-Saxon warrior and our modern young Dallasite get their grids? From their cultures, their friends, the movies they watch, the ads they see, the videos they watch, the songs they listen to, their teachers in school, their heroic stories, who society tells them should be their heroes to emulate. So they're not really choosing for themselves. Rather, they're filtering their feelings through society's grid, jettisoning some, embracing others. They're choosing to be the selves their culture tells them they may be. So so the modern claim that we all must create our own identity ultimately is a false narrative. We need to see through this and explain this to our secular friends. And then finally, number four, to combat these modern narratives, we must bring the gospel to bear. So show your friend that if they are ready, subconsciously, letting their cultural grids shift their feelings and tell them which ones are good, which ones are bad, why don't you instead let the Bible do that? Let the Bible be your grid. Otherwise, you're a slave to your culture. You think you're free, but you're not. But our culture makes you a slave to its ideals under the false heading that you're free. We need to engage our secular friends with these truths. And then finally, and put this on the overhead, instead of pressure to create your own identity, the gospel offers true freedom. Because it gives us an unshakable identity in Yeshua, the Messiah. We can be secure and confident and at peace as adopted children in his family. And we can 
rest in that because it's an identity, hear me well, because this is the only identity that's not achieved but received. We don't strive for this identity. We don't have to always be worried that we're going to lose it if we don't measure up. No, it's a gift of grace from God. And He will complete the good work that He's begun in you. In Messiah, you have the ultimate recognition and identity, the approval of God Himself. And then finally, above everything else, to reach our secular culture, we must preach the gospel of grace. This is powerfully illustrated in the story, a true story I recently read of, of a guy named Langdon Dilkey. He was a philosophy major at Harvard, 1930s, uh, where, and at Harvard he lost the faith he was raised in. Uh, he became a secular humanist, and because he believed that all men were basically good and basically rational, uh, that he believed we, we, we humans really don't need God. Because we know what to do. If we can just tap the wonderful human spirit, we can do so much good and make the world a better place, he thought. He was an idealist. So he goes off to China in the 1930s to teach English at a university in northeast China. And in 1940, the Japanese overran that part of China, and he was put in an internment camp, along with many other Americans and Europeans. It was a type of prison camp for civilians. Everyone there was put in extremely difficult situations. For example, there were 2,000 people there and only two latrines. It was not a per se concentration camp, but the living conditions were, were horrible. And the first thing that Langdon Gilkey discovered firsthand by observing his fellow inmates was the doctrine of sin, the biblical doctrine of sin. He began to get very disillusioned about the real nature of man. Because he thought that human beings were basically good uh, and, and rational. But when they were all put into this camp, and it was a survival situation, the cruelty and the selfishness and the evil that came out astounded him. Especially, uh, uh, even and especially among people that he thought were so wonderful. Because when push came to shove, he saw them turn into monsters. And he began to think, hey, maybe the Bible's right about sin and the fallen state of man and we all needing a savior. For example, here's one small example. There was one room with nine single men in it, a very small room. Another room, same size, with 11 single men in it. Everyone had only about 19 inches of space. So the guys, the 11 people in the room said to the guys with only nine people in the room, let's move one of our men uh, to your room to even out the available space. So it'll be ten and ten. Pretty fair. But the people in the room of nine men said, get out of here now. And if you ever come back, we'll beat you to a pulp. <laughs> Lyndon Gilkey thought, you know, this request to move one of the men uh, was kind of a no-brainer. Right? Share and share alike. Equality. We all claim we're for equality. But the guys in the room with only nine men said, forget it. Your problem's are not our problems. We've got enough problems of our own. Get out of here. And with things like this that made Langdon guilty say, you know, maybe I was wrong about sin. See, we started to consider Yeshua faith again. Uh, the faith he'd been he'd originally raised in. But then he began to realize that a lot of people in the compound actually were missionaries uh, and ministers and priests. Why? Because a lot of the Americans and Europeans in Northeast China in the 1930s were there because they were there for religious ministries. So there was a lot of missionaries and ministers and priests. 
And what freaked Landon Gilkey out was that they, they were every bit as bad as everybody else. Except even worse, because they used religious reasons to justify their selfishness and to justify trampling upon others. But there was one guy who was different. His name was Eric Bedell. He had won several gold medals for the UK in the 1924 Olympics in track and field. He was a Scotsman, strong believer, became a missionary to China. His story was made famous in the movie Chariots of Fire. Anyways, Langan Guilty said that there's one guy there, this Scottish missionary, Eric Liddell, who was totally different. And in his memoirs, Langan Guilty writes this, and put this on the overhead. He writes, It's rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint. But Eric Liddell came as close as anyone I knew. Or virtually everyone else was struggling with anger and despair, or being selfish and exploiting others. He was overflowing with good humor and love. And his life was constantly pouring out of himself to help others, and especially the pent-up teenagers who were really in despair. He became, in essence, a youth pastor to them. He started chess tournaments. He helped them make model boats, organized track and field races and square dances for them. Oh, he was always befriending and engaging and counseling them. He freely shared what little he had with others. We don't believe we would have psychologically survived without him. But tragically, before the end of the war, Eric Liddell was suddenly struck with a brain tumor and died in the camp. But during this time, Lincoln Guilty realized something. He realized there was a difference between religion and the gospel of grace. Because in Eric Liddell, he saw a true Yeshua follower, a true disciple of Jesus. You saw a man who knew he was a sinner saved by grace. There was not a pride about him. There was not an arrogance about him. He had a certainty within him of God's love. And so we didn't try to bolster his flagging self-esteem by looking down on others. He was open and welcoming and transparent and loving with everyone. And based on his observations of Eric Liddell, uh, Guilty became a believer. And he writes this, and he put this on the overhead. He writes this, Religion is not the place where the problem of man's egotism is automatically solved. Rather, it's there that the ultimate battle between human pride and God's grace takes place. Insofar as human pride wins the battle, religion can and does become one of the instruments of human sin and suffering. Guilty began to realize that the problem of the world is human arrogance and pride. Me first. Your life to serve mine. And even inside the body of Messiah, there can be this confrontation, right, between human pride and God's grace. And human pride can win. And we can lose the gospel. And we can quickly degenerate. There are all sorts of heresies in our pride, like you're saved by your right doctrine, you're saved by being a good person, you're saved by helping the poor, you're saved by being Jewish, you're saved by Torah observance, preserving the law. Uh, you do all these things, and then God will love you. 
And if you think you're succeeding in these things, that creates pride in you, huge pride. And feelings of superiority uh, uh, and intolerance towards others. And self-righteousness. Put this on the overhead. The only thing that can destroy self-righteousness is not religion. Because that only enhances it. And not secularism, that only engenders a thousand and one other fights and conflicts. Just look at our modern secular society. Put the overhead. The only thing that destroys self-righteousness is the gospel of grace. Let me close with this. George Whitfield preached a sermon in Connecticut in 1740. A semi-illiterate farmer named Nathan Cole heard him preach, and he wrote this in his diary. We'll put this on the overhead. Uh, All my life, he he writes, I've been religious, but self-righteous. But upon me hearing George Whitfield preach, it gave me a heart wound. My old foundation was broken up. And I saw that my righteousness could not save me. And Nathan Cole became a a true Yeshua follower that day. In the confrontation between human pride and God's grace, God's grace won. And only if we here at time are likewise filled with people who've had that same confrontation and where God's grace has won, will we be a community that can attract secular non-believers and have them see the beauty of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let the music team to come up. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your gospel. The gospel of Yeshua. The eternal gospel that speaks to all cultures and transcends all cultures and corrects all cultures. Help us here at that time to be a messianic community that can reach our modern secular culture, especially our fellow Jewish community, by living out these distinctives so powerfully marked by the original believers, racial and ethnic diversity, that welcomes everybody, compassion for the poor, and generosity, where we self-sacrificially give of our resources, forgiveness and non-retaliation, loving our enemy, Staunchly pro-life and refusal to support candidates who are not pro-life and living and promoting and modeling sexual purity and fidelity where sex is confined to a husband and a wife within a biblical marriage. Let us, Lord, be a community that attracts non-believers because they see you, Lord, embodied and incarnated within our midst in how we treat each other, how we walk in your spirit, and live out these distinctives. Help us to understand also the anti-gospel modern narratives of the sovereign self and creating our own independent identity and the narrative of absolute freedom to do whatever we want and the narrative of personal happiness being the greatest good and, uh, and no objective truths or moralities, but we all create our own. Help us to know how to identify and combat and refute these lies by bringing your gospel to bear on each one of them. And most of all, help us to live out and preach not religion and not self-righteousness, but your gospel of grace. We pray this all in your name, Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.